take that Bible, look over to James. So excited. If you're visiting today, we just introduced the book last week with uh, an exposition of the first verse. But let me read for you. Brady's already done it, but let me touch on it with you one more time in James 1, 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus of, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." Now, we began last week, and we began, and we said it began with that opening word, James, who is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. We said, though he is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, he identifies himself in that text there in the ESV as a servant of God. It would be appropriate to say that he identified himself as a slave of God. They had different terms for servants, and you might think, well, this is just a servant. No, this is a slave. This was somebody who was if you will, bonded to their owner who had no freedom. And this is what he's saying is he was a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was not just Jesus, his half-brother, but he's Messiah Christ. But he's more than that. He's Lord. He's deity. And then he gets right into the book. And the first issue that he gets to here is the issue of trials. And remember that we said that these believers were driven from their homes. Many of them had lost all of their possessions. Some of them, in the context of this writing, were, be, were being exploited by the rich. They faced disunity. They faced favoritism in chapter 2. They faced greed, to just mention a few. And what happened is these, what I call, test of faith, were tearing apart the church as believers were succumbing to both external pressures from without and from trials from within. And so the first issue he deals with is trials. And I was thinking about that text in the book of Job in 5-7 where it says that man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. And as we begin this morning, I ask you, have you ever had a bad day? And then I had to lengthen it. Have you ever had a bad week? (laughs) Have you ever had a bad year or years? Uh, Maybe you've heard about the account that actually appeared on a company accident form. And I think I'll be able to recite this, and I think you'll be able to grasp it. Here's what the accident report said from this construction worker. He said, when I got to the building, I found that the hurricane had knocked off some bricks around the top. Picture that. He said, so I rigged up a beam with a pulley at the top of the building, and you could just see him hoisting in his letter here a couple of barrels full of bricks. So he went back up, and he had fixed the damage area, and there were a lot of bricks left over. He went back down to the bottom and began releasing the line. He said, unfortunately, the barrel of bricks 
was much heavier than I, and before I knew what was happening, the barrel started coming down, and I was being jerked up, if you can picture that. He said, quote, I decided to hang on because I was too far off the ground by then to jump. And halfway up, I met the barrel of bricks coming down fast. I received a hard blow on my shoulder. And then I continued to the top, banging my head against the beam and getting my fingers pinched in the jam- and jammed in the pulley. When the barrel hit the ground hard, it burst its bottom, allowing the bricks to spill out. And I was now heavier than the barrel. He said, I started down again at at high speed. Halfway down, I met the barrel coming up fast and received severe injuries to my shins. And when I hit the ground, I landed on the pile of spilled bricks, getting several painful cuts and deep bruises. At this point, I must have lost presence of mind because I let go of the grip on the line and the barrel came down fast, giving me another blow to my head and putting me in the hospital. I respectfully request sick leave. Man, that's 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 a hard day, isn't it? That's a hard day on the job. But in a more serious note, what happens to you? When the crushing weight of trials leads you to the pit of despair, what do you do then? See, because it's at that point that your faith is being tested. Now, as we walk into the text here, I just want to ask this at the beginning. Where are you being tested right now? At what point, at what place, With what person are you being tested? Because I guarantee you, you are being tested somewhere. You have a trial somewhere. You have a test of faith at some point. Because God not only allows those things, He sends those trials So if you're taking notes, the first banner here that we'll look at in 2 verses 2 through 12 is that faith is tested in trials. Now glance down at the text. You'll see our key word there in verse 2. He says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds. If you look down at verse 12, you'll see that word again. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial." That word for trial in verse 2 and verse 12, that creates a bracket. That word means to put to test, okay? That's what a trial is, to put to test. And it denotes a testing that is being dictated toward an end to ultimately, and I'd say positively, discover the quality of the person being tested. And so it speaks of putting someone or something to the test. Now, let me just see if I can clarify one thing, and I'll just be brief here. There are two meanings of that word trial in verse 2, in verse 12, but then it continues in verse 13, okay? That little word is just simply the Greek word parosmos, and it can denote an outward trial or testing, as it is in verse 2 or 12, 
Or it can speak of an inner enticement to sin and it's a temptation in 113. That is the same word in the original language. So the word can either mean a trial, a test, or it can mean a temptation. And the context will make it clear as we proceed in the exposition what is the best way to look at that. But listen, when God allows or sends trials, he always does so for the purpose of purifying your faith and strengthening your faith. And so he's going to send these trials. I don't, they could be various. They could be financial difficulties. They could be a loss of income. They could be a loss of a job. That could be a test. It could be that you have a difficult boss. It could be that you're facing a serious illness. It could be in the last weeks or in the last year, you've had to stare death in the face, and it's a trial. Maybe some of you have been through a divorce. Maybe some of you have had a car accident. Maybe some of you just have a car that is a trial. Some of you are facing health issues. Josiah is back in ICU facing more procedures, and you have more procedures and more surgery, and you've told no one because that just might be your style a little bit more. You might be facing loneliness. You could be facing future fear. You could be battling criticism. You could be under some form of persecution. You could have some frustrations with your children. You might have frustrations with your in-laws. You might have a relationship that's gone south. On the other hand, you could be tested with wealth positively. You could be tested with position. You could be tested with your skill. And listen, the blessing can be a test of your faith. Hardship brings trials, but listen, so does success. And I'll share that in a moment. Some of you are saying, yeah, I wish I had that trial. Um, But success brings that. But trials, listen, wherever you find yourself in the midst of it, test the genuineness of your faith. And at the same time, they are purging and strengthening your faith. So trials always come with a purpose, namely that the one being tested should emerge stronger and pure as a result of the testing. Now just pick up the text, just a few things here at the beginning. He says there in verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers. What's the next word? You know that. When he says you meet trials. It's not a question of if you meet trials. It's when. And if you're not in a trial, just wait. Okay? And so here James is instructing us, it's when, not if you meet trials. In other words, these trials, listen, are unavoidable. And they are often unwelcome intrusions into our lives. And sometimes we might even agree they come at the wrong time. But believe me, they're coming. (laughs) They're coming. It's not if, it's when. Now look at the text again in verse 2. He says, count it all joy, my brothers. He says, when you, and then he uses this phrase, meet trials of various kinds. He uses that phrasing, meet trials. If you're holding a New American Standard, which I'm more used to, it says when you encounter trials of various kinds. 
Very well. Meat trials. The word meat trials just means to fall into. In other words, you're moving on in your life, not a matter of if, but when, and you're going to meet these trials. But when you meet them, it's a hard thing to say. I like encounter. The, The word means to fall into them. In fact, there's only one other place that that word is used in that way, and it's used in Luke 10.30. Do you remember of the man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho? And it says that that man fell, is our word, among thieves on all sides. In other words, as he's walking, he wasn't just accosted by a robber. He fell among thieves, and they literally, is the thought, surrounded him. And it pictures the man being surrounded by thugs with no way of escape. And so like these hidden thieves that surrounded the man, trials at times can feel like you fall into them, you've encountered them, and you become surrounded by them, and you encounter them like the thief unaware. Now look what James says. Look down again at verse 2. He says, when you meet these trials, and then he uses this phrase of various kinds. And you say, what do you mean various kinds? It just means many colored. It means the trials are diversified. In fact, the old King James uses the word, do you remember that in Peter, manifold temptations. And the reason I say that is there's some scholars who think these trials are the big ones, and he's not really talking about the small ones. But frankly, in the Bible, you can't make a distinction between the big trial and the small trial. You're going to meet trials in your life, not if, but when. And when you meet them, they're going to be various. They're going to be manifold. They're going to be colorful, if you will. In fact, just to give you a picture of that term there, various kinds, it was used in the Old Testament in in the language to speak, you you know that, of Joseph's coat of many, what? Colors, that's the term here. It stresses the great variety. It stresses the great diversity of trials, big or small. In fact, I mentioned Peter uses manifold temptations in 1 Peter 1.6. So what James is saying is, listen, trials come in all sizes and shapes. They come when, not if, and they sometimes come at the wrong time. We meet them, we fall into them, we become surrounded by them, and they're all different sizes and shapes. And what James is asking you, and I'm asking you, right? Because this isn't just a Bible lesson. He's asking you how, right now, right now, don't push it off on someone else. How are you, how am I, to respond to trials? How are you responding right now to whatever that difficulty is? Maybe write it at the top of the page. And this is what James is after. And he says to us, how you respond reveals the maturity of your faith. And so we're always put in a test. And I guess what I'm going to show you in a moment, you think the tests just happen. And I'm saying, yeah, they happen. But I'm telling you, God's bringing the test. And I don't even want to say God allows the test. God is sending the test. You say, well, Scott, if he is, I'd like to know what he's doing. Uh, Okay, we'll walk in James. But listen, there's several factors to understanding God's purpose in trials. First, you must understand this, your response in life's trials. 
your response in life's trials. Look at the text there in verse 2, and you've seen it hundreds of times, to count it all, what? Joy. Stop there just for a second. You identify what your struggle is, what your issue is, what your trial is, what your relationship is, what it looks like with your ex-spouse. I I don't know what it looks like with your boss, what it looks like with your doctor, what it looks like with your spouse. And then you say this, how am I to respond? Well, James says here to count it, what? All joy. Now, stop there. It just appears a little bit bizarre, does it not? I mean, it's rather odd. Think of the context. He is commanding a suffering people to respond with joy. I mean, he's writing to a group of people, some of whom have lost their homes because of persecution, and he says, count it all joy. Now, this is not the phrasing of Bobby McFerrin, who wrote the song, Don't Worry, Be What? Happy. That's not what James is saying, and we'll talk about that. But we live in a culture that seeks to remove any discomfort, relieve any pressure, and relieve any sorrow. And so James writes here, and he tells us to respond with joy. Now, James is not unaware of trials. He was an eyewitness, certainly we know, to Stephen's death in the book of Acts. Jesus was his brother. Jesus was a man of sorrows and a man acquainted with grief. James understands. But he commands you, he commands me to respond with an attitude of joy. Now, now look at the text in verse 2. Depending on what you're holding, I'm holding the ESV. It says, count it all joy. One translation says, consider it all joy. And really what he's trying to say in that phrasing there, it's, it's kind of like a mathematical term. And he's telling you to have a settled conviction about your trials. In other words, James says, I want you to respond to your trial in this way. It would, as be, it would be as though he's saying, make a mental judgment of trials like this. And he says to count it all joy. Make it a careful and deliberate judgment. Think of your trials, and this might take some training. Think of your trials in this way. And I'll be honest with you, really, he's saying here to count it, and you can read it, all joy. You could even translate it, count it pure joy. You could even say count it sheer joy. So you're going to have these trials in your life, and the first principle is how you respond to it. And, and of course, this is the biblical analogy of Paul in Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord, what? Always, and again, I say what? Rejoice. There's the principle. And do you remember Paul in that same context said, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever, what? Circumstances. I am in. And he wrote that from where? A jail. And he said to rejoice always. Paul experienced this type of joy in 2 Corinthians 7, 4, when he said, I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. I mean, this is how he looked at it. You remember when the apostles were beaten in Acts chapter 5? They went their way. They went away from the presence of the council. 
Here's what it says in 541. Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And so you have this response here. It's bound up in other scriptures. In fact, look over in the book of Acts just for a moment. In the book of Acts, you see this. Look there in Acts chapter 13. You see this similar response in other portions of the word of God. In Acts chapter 13, they had preached there. And it says in 49, 13... 49, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. And then this is their response, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium. And the disciples, verse 52, were filled with what? Joy in the Holy Spirit. So understand as as James rolls out this principle, this is not brand new. Look over in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 in verse uh, 21 there, the ad. They advocate customs, this is what they were saying about the apostles, that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And in 1622, the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Now, you know, you think about that. Paul got called on the Damascus road. I want you to be a light. I want you to be a testimony. I want you to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. He struck him on that road. He gave him a divine call. He gave him direct revelation for probably 14 years. And then he starts preaching on his missionary journey. And he's hauled off into jail. And not only is he hauled off into jail, they're beating him with rods and blows. And I would just think Paul would have said, hey, Lord, this plan isn't working. Hey, Lord, I'm your anointed to go do this. But that's not his response. Look at 1624. Having received this order to put them in the inner prison and fasten their feet with the stocks. And then it says, verse uh, 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. And what were they doing? Singing hymns of praise to God. And so listen. Paul and James as well just says you need to respond with an attitude of joy. Now, I want to be clear. Sometimes when you're walking through a difficult trial and somebody comes up to you after you've just lost your home, your farm, your business, your spouse, whatever, and they come up and they quote this verse, you might start looking for boxing gloves and start quoting from Job that these are sorry counselors, okay? But this kind of joy, listen, is not the giddy joy. It's not the frivolous joy, nor is it a joy in trials just for trials itself. He's not saying to us, just grin and bear it. Rather, there is a conscious awareness of what God is producing in us through the trial that gives us joy. You say, okay, Scott, respond with joy, but why? And this leads us to our second principle. Here's your rationale in life's trials. And here's why you can 
respond in joy. Look back to the book of James and follow the argument. He says you're to respond in joy to these trials of various kinds. Then he says in verse 3, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. Here's the rationale. Joy can be found in the trial because you know what God is producing in you during the times of trial. In other words, trials are an opportunity for growth. They are not obstacles that you should avoid. Now, you'll just notice the connection there. Look at verse 3 at the beginning. For you know... And then you remember back in verse 2, count it all joy, kind of like added up to this. And you see that James is saying, if you're going to get success in these trials, you cannot live off your emotions. You cannot live off your feelings. He's after a rational assessment. Now, the joy here results because of the knowledge of what God is producing in the midst of the trial. You say, well, what's he producing? Look down at the text again in verse 3. It's producing this quality of steadfastness, it says. So he's, he's working that quality in us. But before that, look, look what he says in verse 3. He says, you know that, and in this phrase, the testing of your faith. Stop there just for a second. The idea of it's a test or it's the proof of your faith. So that, listen, Grace Church, when trials come, they come to test or they come to prove the quality of your faith. And that phrasing there in verse 3 for testing is the picture, if you can imagine this, of precious metal that would just be heated up until it became liquid, then what they would do is the impurities would rise to the top, and as those impurities would rise to the top, that metal worker would scrape them off. And then after he scraped off the impurities, pure metal would be left. And in the same way, listen, trials expose the believers to the refiner's fire. And the fire of testing is intended by God to strengthen your faith. And for some, even this morning, the heat may be on. It really may be on. You say, well, what is he doing? He's producing something in you. He's testing your faith to strengthen your faith and to mature your faith and to produce this quality here called steadfastness. Now, I would say this, too, that the testing here, okay, is not intended to determine your faith, but to purify your faith and to refine the faith that already exists. Now, let me just say this to you. you. You say, Scott, you're kind of like acting like God is bringing the trials. Yes. Scott, you're, you're, you're not saying that he's just allowing the trial. You're correct. I'm telling you, he's dialing them up for you. You say, well, I don't know if that equates 
with my theology. Well, listen, you need to, and I need to make sure my theology, your theology, equates with the Word of God. What I'm telling you is that not Satan, but God Almighty may be testing you right now. You say, well, can you prove that? Yeah, we, I could probably go a few weeks on it, but I'll just take a moment with you. Look over to the book of Genesis for a second. Have you ever seen this? And, and I'm just saying that this is the testing of your faith. Look over at Genesis chapter 22. It might make you look at my trial or your trial a little different. And of course, you're well acquainted with where I'm taking you in Genesis 22. You know the account of Abraham. You know what happened to him when God said, see the stars of the sky, so shall what? Your descendants be. He said, look at the sand of the seashore, so shall what? Your descendants be. Abram, I'm no longer calling you um, Abram, but I'm now calling you what? Abraham. And what does Abraham mean? Father of many, what? Nations. I mean, can you imagine how embarrassed he was? Hey, Abram, how you doing? Uh, it's Abraham. Oh, really? It's Abraham now. Who renamed you? Yahweh. Well, your name's Abraham. You, you've got many descendants. No, I don't have any yet. Because you remember from the time that he told him to the stars of the sky, to the sand of the seashore, Bible scholars out here, how long was it until he gave him Isaac? You might think it's quick, but we think quick. We grow fruit. It heats up in the summer real quick, right? I'm telling you, if you put the accounts together, it's about 25 years. 25 years when he said, the stars of the sky, the sand of the seashore, your name's going from Abram to Abraham, father. Well, how many kids do you have now, Abraham? Well, none. You imagine? And then he finally gets Isaac, doesn't he? You know the account. Isaac's born. And then he tells him, I want you to take what you love most, what you cherish most, and I want you to go what? Sacrifice it. Look at it in Genesis 22. After these things, do you see, underline this. God, what does it say? Tested Abraham. Stop there for a second. Do you think he's not going to test you? Do you think he's not going to test me? Listen, God's in the business of testing. And God's going to probably allow something to go south on you, to teach you and to teach me dependency. But he finally gives him a son. And then he says, listen, I want you to take your only son. Look at the text again. Abraham said in verse 1, here I am. He said, take your son, verse 2, your only son, Isaac, whom you, what, love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took the two of his young men. You know the account. All I'm saying is, God was testing Abraham. Say, what for, Scott? He was proving his faith. He was in the effort of strengthening his faith. He was trying to mature his faith. He was doing an Abraham producing a quality back in James that's called steadfastness or endurance, and he might have you right there, right now. In other words, God tested Abraham, and he may indeed test you with what is most cherished to you. 
And God is in the business of proving the quality of our faith. He tested him. You say, is there others? Oh, yeah, there's a whole lot of others. I'll just take you this one. Look over to 2 Chronicles. I want you to see it with your eyes. Go to 2 Chronicles, okay? That's how he tested him to offer what was most dear and most cherished to him. But have you ever seen this with um, Hezekiah? So you got Abraham, you got Hezekiah now, 2 Chronicles chapter 32. I don't have time to go into all of it, but Hezekiah, and I'm in chapter 32, 2 Chronicles 32, verse 24. Uh, this is an amazing account. You read it on your own. But in those days, Hezekiah became sick. Remember that? He's at the point of death, and he prayed to the Lord, and he answered him, and he gave him a sign. And, but Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was what? Proud. Therefore wrath came upon him in Judah and Jerusalem. Amazing. But Hezekiah, verse 26, humbled himself for the pride in his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon him in the days of Hezekiah. But here's what I want to show you. And Hezekiah had very great riches and honor. And he made for himself treasuries for silver, for gold, for precious stones. I mean, the guy's got everything, spices and shields and all kind of costly vessels and storehouses. Also for the yard, for the yield of grain and wine and oil and stalls for all kinds of cattle and sheepfolds. And he provided cities, not a city, cities, plural for himself, and flocks, plural, and herds in abundance. For God had given him very great possessions. But watch this. He's not just rich. Verse 30, that same Hezekiah closed the upper outlet of the waters of Gihon and directed them down to the west side of the city of David. And the, the dude was just smart. The guy's not only got riches, but he's directing irrigating canals of water and channels of water into the city. Amazing. And then it says in verse 31, and And so in the manner of the envoys of the princes of Babylon who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God, amazing. How do you you reason this? God left him to what? Himself. I'm not even quite sure what it means. So why would he do that? Look at the verse. In verse 31, he left him to himself in order to what? Test him to know all that was in his what? Heart. Amazing. He didn't test him just to a trial. He tested Hezekiah with riches beyond we've ever seen and wisdom and intellect to go with it. And then he pulled back because he wanted to see what was in his heart. And I say that God tested Hezekiah not because he didn't know what was in his heart, but to show Hezekiah what was in his own heart. Listen, I'm just saying to you, this thing called the Christian life is a real game right here, right? We're not just talking about Bible characters. He's got something for you right now. He's got something dialed up for you. He's got something dialed up for me. 
In fact, I was greatly ministered just to, in the last song, not for a moment. Ministered to my own heart, right? We all have certain things, but this isn't just there. Go back to Deuteronomy. I don't want to go too far on this, but go to Deuteronomy. I'm just saying it's all over the place where he's going to test your faith. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, do you remember this? He, of course, let him wander. Let him wander a long time. How long did he let Israel wander as a nation? Forty years. And I might beg the question, why? Why? And it says this in 8.1, the whole commandment that I command you today shall be careful to do to you that you may live and multiply, go in and possess the land that the Lord God gave to your forefathers or to your fathers. And you shall remember all the whole way that the Lord God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you. And then what does it say? Testing you to know what was in your what? Hearts. He's, you say, well, Scott, I, I feel like um, he's kind of testing me. And if I fail the test, James 1.13, they begin to blame who? God. Same word. But, but what James is saying, and God is only in the business to prove the quality of your faith and to reveal where your heart is. Look at Deuteronomy 8.16. He said, He fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and what? Test you. And then this last phrase, note that, to do good in the what? In the end. You got to stay with the argument. Look over this one's almost bizarre. Deuteronomy 13. Look over there. I just, there's a whole theology here, but this one just is like, really? Yeah. It, you ever see this? Deuteronomy 13.1? If a prophet or a dreamer or dream, uh, dreams arises among you and gives you a sign and wonder. Okay, you got one of these guys who just has a sign, has a wonder. Verse 2, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods whom you have not known and let us serve them. You, doesn't matter if he performed the sign, He says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams. Watch this. For the Lord your God is, what? Testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. I mean, the only way I can take it is people come into the midst, into the sovereignty of God, even if the signs is performed right, and they say, follow this false God, here the writer says, no, you shall not listen to the words of the Lord, that, that prophet, and the Lord might be testing you. He's in the business of testing, is he not? I mean, maybe just a few more. Look over at Exodus just for a moment. I'm just giving you an example of how our lives work, of what he's doing, knowing, for you know, He says, this is the joy that the testing of your faith produces endurance. But in Exodus 15, you remember after they walked through all those years of being in slavery and so forth. And then in Exodus 15, verse 25, they had no water. They came to Marah in 1523. They could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. And therefore, it was named Marah. And in 1524, the people, what did they do? Grumble. And I just want to ask you, are you grumbling? (laughs) 
are you grumbling right now? Because Israel was like professional grumblers, and I kind of become one of them at times in my life. And if you grumble in the midst of it, then you have no idea what God's doing in your life and in my life. And when I read this, I think they grumbled. They complained to God. They complained to Moses. Look, they came to Mara 23. They couldn't drink. They grumbled in verse 24. And he cried, Moses in 25. And the Lord opened him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. And there the Lord made them a statue and a rule. And there he, what? He tested them. He tested them with no water that they would depend upon him. And he may, in your life and in my life, rip out what's most dear and what's most cherished because he's doing something in you. You say, well, what is he doing in me? Look back to James, okay? Go back because it's not my word, right? It's the, so what's he doing then? What's he doing in my life? And I guarantee you there's something not working because he's doing something. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. In other words, he's doing this. This isn't the old pur- ultimate purpose, but he's producing a character in you and a character in me. So this is why you shouldn't grumble. We should have joy. I'm preaching to myself too, Right? But he's producing this quality of steadfastness in the New American Standard. It's the word endurance. If you're holding an NIV, it's perseverance. Very well. If you're holding a translation that says patience, that is not very good. I shouldn't say, I I don't want to be so bold. I don't know if any of you have where it says in verse 3 that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Some translations say patience. But let me explain what the word means. He's got you in a trial. He's trying to prove your faith so that you'd come out stronger and more mature. And ultimately, you can count it joy when you meet and fall into and are surrounded by all these trials. For you know that the testing, the proving of your faith here in verse 3 is producing this quality of steadfastness. it's It's a really neat word And it comes from what we just say, a compound word, the word steadfast. And it means under the first part of the word. And the second part of the word means to stay or to abide or to remain. So if you put it together, it just means to stay and remain under for a time. Does that make sense? You've got a weight on you. He's testing you. Don't blow it. You know, don't try to get out of it quick, quicker than you should. Don't go around your trial and circumvent it. In fact, maybe that's my whole message today. You need to just remain under the weight. That's the Greek word, hupo mene. Hupo means under, mene means remain. And the picture that comes to my mind is when I was a little kid and I was watching this Olympic wrestler, um, 
I think it was the Munich games. I'm dating myself a little bit. 1972. I'm a little tiny kid. And there was a guy, you guys, what was that one? I used to just call it the, the clean and jerk. You know that one? I don't know. What, what do they call that now? Is it powerlifting? I, I don't You know the one where the guy has to come out, hold it here, then snap it over his head. But there was a guy. In fact, I, I Googled it, and I, I wanted to get his name right. And um, his name was Vasily Alexeviv or something like that. How many of you remember this guy? Oh, see, some of you do. This guy was just, he was, I would just get, I would only want to watch that that one, I'd want to watch this guy. This guy was a Russian guy. In fact, he just died a little bit ago, but he was like 6'4", 350 pounds. He was a massive man, and he had these like long sideburns that came down, and every, they even got a picture of him holding it up right here. And because uh, I, I want to see, I just said Russian weightlifter who was awesome, and he came up. Because everybody else would have these weights they would put on, and they would just kind of like, you know, and kind of load the bar up. And everybody knew that this guy was in, I mean, he won eight years in a row. Nobody could touch him. And I just liked the way he looked, too. I mean, he would just kind of walk out on the stage, and I knew under his breath he was saying, I'm bad. I'm bad. And I always remember he'd like tape his ankles down there, big old sideburns. And then whenever he came out, they'd load up other stuff, but not too much, just enough. Somebody told me that he could beat any of his competition, but not so much that he wouldn't break his world record the next year. Because every time he broke the world record, they give him more money in Russia. So, but this guy would come out, and you know how it goes. He'd get the chalk on, and he'd get it, just, just put it right here. And I always remember when he did that, the bar went, boo, you know. But do you remember what they had to do in that, in that event of the Olympics? He had to press it over his head, did he not? And then he didn't have to just put it over his head. He had to do what? He had to hold it until he heard the what? The bell. He had to secure the hold. And then once he heard the bell from the judge that he secured the hold, he could drop it. And here is that picture in my mind. God's got you under a weight. And what the Spirit of God is saying to you today is you pray for this quality of endurance and steadfastness. It is not easy to hold. But once that, once the guy hit the bell, I got to remember it. He would just, I don't think he'd kind of like put it down like that. He would just go like this, and it would hit the platform. The whole platform would shake, and then it was the best part. He'd walk off, and I knew he was saying, I am so bad. You know, I, I mean, I just, and I thought, and I'd sit there as a little kid, you are the baddest man, you know, and, uh, and he won every time, eight years in a row, gold medals, won the worlds every year. But I think of that picture, and I'm thinking of you and me. We want to get the trial off and, and move away before God says, you're ready. And, and I want you to know, You say, well, Scott, can we mess up our life? Yes. Look at verse 4. And I don't want to say mess it up in an old. And let steadfastness have its full effect. You don't have to let it have its full effect. You could just have another plan like Abraham did. And her name was Hagar. 
God, even though you want me to wait, I'm going to just, you know, she's going to step in right here and give me that son that you promised. He, so though he's a man of God, he had another plan. Moses had another plan. It's called microwave Christianity. We want it really fast, but you know what? Beloved, listen, this is not easy, but he might have you under a weight, and you're like, how long do I need to hold on to it? How long do I need to remain under? Well, until the Lord is done. But listen, he's proving something you, and I'll just give it away right now. Ultimately, where he's pushing all these trials is for you to be more and more like who? Jesus Christ. And he's proving your faith and maturing your faith so that you and I would ever look more like Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4, that you would be perfect, that you would be complete, that you would be lacking in nothing. He is all about making you more like Christ. And listen, if it was all up to you and you wrote the script for your whole life, you would write a life without trial. You would write a life and a journal that had no obstacles. I would probably. But you know, God doesn't do that. God's in the business of wanting you to share the image of his son. And he's going to prove and try your faith that we ever would grow in our steadfastness there and grow to be made perfect like his son. And so he brings these trials, and that's why James can say, count it all, what? Joy. He's making this work in your life.